one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 324 for the week of Sunday, June 5th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. How are you doing today? Doing alright, thank you. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Doing pretty good, Sawyer. And yourself? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, it's a great night, be. It's, oh, it's a great <laughs> night. <laughs> it's gonna be one of them nights, boys and girls. I can see it already. <laughs> and welcome as well, Gina Hurley. Hi guys, I am trying not to giggle because I am so excited to hear everything Mark has to say tonight. Okay, I guess that means I have to actually catch my breath and compose myself here. All right, so let's get this show on the road. Let's get things started with the continuation of last week's episode. We talked about mid-mission of STS-134, and Endeavor safely came rolling to a stop on runway 15 at about 2.28 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time at the Kennedy Space Center. Houston, Endeavor, we'll stop. 122 million miles flown during 25 challenging space flights. Your landing ends a vibrant legacy for this amazing vehicle that will long be remembered. Welcome home, Endeavor. Yeah, thank you, Houston. You know, the space shuttle is an amazing vehicle to fly through the atmosphere, hit it at Mach 25, uh, I mean, steer through the atmosphere like an airplane, land on a runway. It is really, really an incredible ship. On behalf of my entire crew, I want to thank every person that's worked for to get this mission going, and every person that's worked on Endeavor. Um, it's sad to see her land for the last time, uh, but she really has a great legacy. Ending her 25th mission, the 134th mission of the Space Shuttle program, and her final flight. So, uh, I can't believe it's over. And uh, Mark, I know you were there for landing and everything too, right? Yeah, I sure was, and what's confusing, I, I just about uh, hesitate to, to bet that I'm going to get the numbers mixed up, because what was last was first, and what was next was in the middle, and it was one of those nights that uh, basically for me started about so just before 7 p.m. local time and ended uh, around 9 a.m. the next day, and uh, it was a great night, and it really was historic. And I appreciate uh, having a having a helper there, which the helper in this case was my wife Mary, and it'll actually allowed us to cover 
the, the rollout from different levels uh, in the VAB. Uh, we got photos from both levels. I uh, had a lot going on in the landing. Uh, that was one of those uh, one of those quiet times when uh, we were actually both out at the shuttle landing facility to see the first night landing for either of us, and it was it was quite. It was quite a night, and <laughs> I, I seem like I may have mentioned this, but when 133 landed back, uh, I want to say it was March 9th when Discovery landed, uh, I was I was late getting to KSC. I was at the press site, not out at the landing facility, and uh, there were a few people there, not very many actually, because they were all out at the uh, prime spot, out at the field. And I, I looked and I saw people looking up and actually pointing. And I looked up in the sky and I couldn't find the orbiter for nothing. I heard the sonic boom. I heard the uh, mission audio announcing, you know, wheel stop. And I never saw Discovery once. Uh, this time, it was for different reasons. It was dark. Oh, dark. Past oh, dark 30 at night. And uh, the hint that we had, aside from watching a, uh, a, a clock that was counting down to touchdown, uh, was looking at the northeast end of the field, you could see those really, really bright floodlights that they, they light the touchdown zone of the runway with. And you saw a shadow change the pattern of the lights that you were seeing over the treetops. You, you couldn't actually see line of sight to the runway surface. And so what we saw was the shadow of the orbiter passing through those lights just before it touched down. And uh, then a, a few seconds later, I couldn't tell exactly how many because I think I held my breath nearly the whole time. You know, here comes the orbiter, you know, zooming past the, the area that was, that was unobstructed between us and the runway. And I remember afterwards uh, hearing one of the photographers at the news center saying, yeah, he said, I got one picture. It had the nose of Endeavor. I had a, my next picture had the tail of Endeavor. He said, I couldn't get one that had the whole orbiter, and that's how fast it went by. And for firsthand perspective, for me, never having been there at the shuttle landing facility on a, on a landing, um, the thing that struck me most, you know, it's, it's gliding in. You know, it's dropping like a rock. But when it touched down, was uh, a much higher volume and different sound to the tire noise on the runway and I've worked around airports since the mid 70s and I've heard small planes you know screech screech and down the runway I've heard big planes screech screech and sometimes they bounce and go down the runway but this was different and uh, I think it's the speed the weight of the orbiter and uh, it, it was cool it really was cool um, Man, I wish I wish I could come up with a uh, a blow by blow, but it happens so fast and it goes by so quickly. And I did read, I, I neglected to look this up before the show, but I did read that, and correct me that Endeavor's landing rollout or, you know, from touchdown to stop was the second shortest in the shuttle program. Wow. Really? And briefly, they had a break fire which uh, only lasted maybe 40 seconds. And I think it's because the commander and pilot, uh, maybe they thought they were on an aircraft carrier. Mark Kelly, I believe, is a former Navy pilot. Mm -hmm. But uh, apparently they got on the brakes good, and they, they came to a quick stop. Um, so, But no damage, no hazard. It was, 
it was out before it started nearly and uh but you think about it the weight of the orbiter and hauling that thing to a stop as quick as they do uh back a long time ago they used to have uh tires blow they used to have brake brake systems you know come apart uh you know severely damaged on landing and uh, from from those early that early decade of 30 years of service, they've they've solved the, the, all those problems and have a a phenomenal ship. Yeah, a lot of those uh, changes were put in after, um, unfortunately, after after STS 51L, uh, the drag chute and a lot of the other brake uh, the brake systems were were put in there uh, as a result of uh, as as a part of the recommendation from the uh, from the review board. From that accident, but uh, it's glad to see that uh, they've just you know, built on all that and and move forward with it. It's it's really good to see. Oh, I've got to tell you something else, and this is a, a distinct change. Now, I was there when Endeavour launched, and didn't have the opportunity to get back on uh, on site during Endeavour's mission, and so here I am making my next trip into KSC, and there's the little sign that. No doubt people have seen pictures of and some folks have seen firsthand. It's a uh, kind of a blue sign. It's alongside State Road 3 as you head north towards the VAB. Uh, and it says, you know, it's got the image of the shuttle on it. And it says so many days till launch. Well, it was zero days till landing. And I it never occurred to me that that and and actually when I did leave, I saw I believe I did see. That sign showed uh, 15 days till landing, so uh, nice, nice little touch. Wonder what's going to happen to those signs. Probably, I hope it, they end up in some museum. Hope they end up over at the KSC museum somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine, uh, I imagine they will have a home, and it's I hope something so. that'll. It's another one of those things that's been thought about. Yeah, I hope so. Can't wait to see where that goes. Now, I also got to see, while we're talking about Endeavor, I saw Endeavor's toe back. And uh, that was just after, that was one of those divide-and-conquer moments. Uh, <laughs> Mary went out to the pad with the camera to, uh, to take the, uh, the, the, for the sunrise photo op at the pad. Mm-hmm. And she said that the sunrise was a bit of a disappointment because it just went from, you know, dark to, to light. And there was no real dramatic uh, color in the sky. Uh, definitely cool being out there and seeing the orbiter on the pad with the RSS, you know, away from the fixed service structure. But uh, she was disappointed with pictures that she was getting from it. But uh, on the other hand, I was out at the towway, and some of the photographers that were there, they were just over the top excited. I think there was, uh, oh, man. I was going to give you a number, and I can't remember. But uh, but one of the photographers, uh, I, I just don't see these things because it's not my my world. But they were looking at a uh, a ditch alongside the towway, and it was you know it was early in the morning. It was just after sunrise. The water was flat calm, and some of these folks, people have no doubt seen the pictures, got shots of Endeavor being being taken past us with the uh, mirror image of Endeavor reflected in the water and uh, one of the photographers got a picture that uh, was captioned on uh, nasaspaceflight.com they have a forum which uh, if you pay for the level two form you get to see a lot of extra shots and things that uh, that some of these guys are, are making available to that site 
and one of the pictures had a caption or had a, a picture of one of the space shuttle main engines with a uh, red remove before flight tag uh, hanging off the back of the engine. And uh, it was somewhat of a, another one of those moments that, uh, that kind of has you think, remove before flight. No, we won't need to do that. And, uh, of course, it was just part of their routine flow for a, for a landing orbiter. But uh, it's sad. It's sad. Just a couple other tidbits about uh, Endeavor. Um, when we last left uh, the show, uh, I believe we were just in the process of undocking. And uh, we're about ready to uh, uh, go ahead and perform a little bit of a test of, the, um, of a new uh, docking system that was being perfected called the, uh, the Sensor Test for Orion Relative Navigation Risk Mitigation, or, or STORM for short. Uh, the idea was that the orbiter was going to go ahead, fire its uh, separation burn from the ISS, but instead of firing the second separation burn that would take it further away from the International Space Station, it was going to fire sort of a, a, uh, another burn that would take it, take it back toward the ISS, and what Endeavor was hoping to do uh, is to go ahead and sort of mimic what a uh, an Orion or now the multi-purpose crew vehicle uh, approach would be, and uh, just to see how this new uh, this new lidar system would work. The idea, really, really behind it, was to go ahead and make sure that to to give uh, a a pilot coming toward the International Space Station more data. Uh, as they approach, uh, because the more data you get, and the more, and the sooner you get it, the better your your docking is going to be. Well, the good news is that the uh, the folks over at Lockheed Martin and Ball Aerospace that designed this thing are are extraordinarily pleased with the performance that they got. I believe uh, Storm started delivering data at about 16,000 feet away from the International Space Station, which is a heck of a lot better than the current LIDAR systems do. Uh, I believe that's about 4,000 feet from the ISS. So again, a, a good uh, a good performance on, on that, and it looks like, too, that uh, the future is looking bright for the future of uh, of uh, docking maneuvers for uh, the new for any new spacecraft because I believe too, if I recall from the storm presentation, that uh, this is not just this this could be used in other spacecraft, not just the uh, the multi-purpose crew vehicle. So if any other um, individual wants to go ahead and and try to uh, match this particular. Uh, match storm up with their uh, their docking when any type of their docking systems they can do it. So again, uh, hats off to the storm folks. They and uh, a great mission. Um, also, if if any, did anybody catch this? This was on this is actually on the NASA website. And Sawyer, we might want to throw a link of the show notes to this. There was some really cool images of launch. Um, oh, was that through the Ames Research Center? Yes, yes, indeed. This this was really cool. Um, there were apparently a set of about six cameras captured about 250 images per second of the STS-134 launch, and I believe there was a grand total of about 20,000 photographs taken. And the the images on this thing, although black and white, are just absolutely extraordinarily impressive. If if you haven't already, check out the uh, uh, check out NASA.gov and take a look at these. These are just absolutely amazing. If not, you can also take a look in the show notes. There will be a link to the NASA website with how they did it and the video of what it looked like afterwards. Because the comparison is amazing. What they did was they took all those shots and they used some software 
that basically looked for any white pixels, any bright white or dark black pixels. And if they found those, what they did was they sorted through the other cameras and replaced them with actual images from the other ones. So basically it's all pixels that are clipped together to make such an amazing video. Yeah, what's really cool, if you take a look at the, uh, the, the launch plume, and you can actually see the, the, the flow of the, of, of the fire that's coming out of the, the engine nozzles on, um, on the, the, the SRBs. It's just, I mean, it is just amazing. And I'm wondering, too, if there are any physics majors out there that can kind of sort of take a look at this and see uh, you know, what this really says and, and can this really tell you anything. But, um, again, this, this some spectacular images. Again, those will all be posted in the show notes because I, I suggest you take a look at this one. I first saw that, and I was—I just went, "Wow!" Yeah, my jaw dropped. That's the, the incredible stuff. The coolest so, thing to see, also, is they have a before and an after—a single camera and a six camera. That's yeah, neat. yeah, that was pretty cool to see exactly what the difference is. One of them—it's so bright you can barely see it. The other one—it's phenomenal. You can see the flames coming out of the solid rocket boosters. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's. I mean, you can actually see the flow of it, and it's just really, really interesting. It'd be an interesting, you know, if you're if if you're a physicist and you're interested in like flow dynamics, it should it should be an interesting study. It's really neat, seriously. I just have to make a comment with all the emphasis on all of the space shuttles launches. I mean, obviously, going to launch and seeing a launch is a thrilling experience, but. As you know, as Mark's recounting his experience at the landing, and you know, hearing the the, the sound and you know the the breaking the break fire and you know really getting an impression for how fast and that whizzed past you on um, the orbiter whizzed past you on the runway because it's coming in because it's it's dropping, you know, hundreds of miles per hour. It's literally dropping out of the sky as a glider. I think. What we have to remember is the fact that this vehicle lands and it's reused. And unfortunately, I, you know, it, it's sad to think, oh, you know, it's so it's so much fun to go to a space shuttle launch. But I've never been to a landing. And I think that's really special, Mark. You've been able to be there. I mean, it's probably even a harder thing to coordinate. They could try a couple of orbits and, you know, call for an Edwards landing if the weather isn't right and they decide to bring it home. But it lands you know we go back to the, uh, a capsule no one's going to be standing on the middle of the pacific ocean watching this you know a, a few um well-positioned navy vessels may be able to be the ones that have a view on this or maybe not if they you know don't quite hit their target zone so you know that to me i think is what's really going to be missed about the space shuttle program the elegance of how that machine flies and lands and that, that, to me, is sad. I like the word elegance that you just used, Gina, because uh, at the press site after landing, one of, the, uh, one of the press guys was looking up at the monitor, and I don't remember what was on the monitor in the news center, but he said, he said think about it. He said, six hours ago, Endeavor was in space, and here she is being towed back to the OPF. And that, to me, just... I mean, it, it, it's virtually the same thing when you think about launch. Hey, a few minutes ago it was sitting here on the pad, now it's up in space. But on landing, and the fact that it flew all the way home, it's, it's elegant. It really is. Yeah, it is. I mean, we yeah. built a spaceship. I mean, we built, like, you know, it's not the Enterprise. Like, I mean, the SS Enterprise on Star Trek. But, I mean, it it's a... 
it's a, I mean, you think about it, Mark, you're standing there, you're watching Atlantis roll to the pad, you're waiting for Endeavor to come home. It's almost like you're at an airport. I mean, we actually have a real working, um, you know, space program that has this very active launch and landing center. And to think that, you know, we're going to go back to the capsules and, okay, we'll launch stuff from Kennedy Space Center and then we'll have to pluck it out of the Pacific Ocean and what we get we'll never be able to use again. You know, to some degree, yes, safer, maybe more adaptable, maybe more multi-purpose, but certainly seems like we're taking a huge step backwards. I know I'm getting sort of off the track, but I just felt it bears mentioning as you had such a great experience at um, – at the landing. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Gina. It's going to be sad to see this this great big bird that that we've been using for all these thirty years uh, vanish, and not be doing what uh, what it what it should be doing, which is hauling uh, cargo up to the International Space Station and making sure that uh, our crews are are well. But again. That, that's I have to agree with Mark. That was such a really good word, elegant, because that's what it is. I mean, it, it you know it does take off like a rocket, but the thing lands like a you know like a like a glider, and uh, you know again we're going back to uh, you know plucking people out of the Pacific again. Um, it's kind of sad. I mean, I know one um, iteration on the commercial side, um, uh, Sierra Nevada's Dream Dream Chaser still uses the uh, uh, a sort of a, a, a landing strip type uh, landing strip type uh, approach but uh, we'll have to see if they can get that online and how quickly they can get that online but um, we, we're, we're never going to see the like of these vehicles again yeah, that's that's really the sad part about it they left a heck of a well, maybe someday perhaps not in our lifetime we won't see it again but I would hope to think if we become a spacefaring world that we certainly go return to a reusable spacecraft that can land like an airplane and let people who go into space because they want to visit their uncle Ned on the moon, they can, you know, take their carry-on bag and get off on the runway. And, um, you know, maybe that's a few centuries ahead of us, but someday perhaps. But there's a certain dignity to that. I mean, there's, it worked with the Apollo program and Mercury and Gemini with the, the helicopter picking them up out of the water and even with the Soyuz landing on, you know, the land with the hard smackdown. But there was just a dignity to actually landing on a runway like you normally do in an airplane and then just getting off, whether it be at the terminal or the spaceport. Yeah, agreed, guys. Seriously. But you have to remember, too, the, uh, the multi-purpose crew vehicle, its whole mission will be something else entirely. And uh, we'll just have to see what uh, what plans lie in store. Right now, one thing that was interesting about the about the legacy of the program was that Mark actually asked a couple of people a question regarding that, and uh, we have the clip of that. We also have the answers from Commander Mark Kelly of STS-134. Mark Ratterman with Talking Space. A question for Commander Kelly. I first saw you and your crew here at August 26, 2010, at the shuttle landing facility when AMS came over from Geneva, Switzerland. I remember thinking how committed and focused you were on that hot August day. And what do you expect that you will always remember about STS-134's crew and mission? Well, certainly um, in a 16-day flight, we've got a lot of great stories that we'll be telling for a long time, Uh, many that we certainly can't share with you. Um, But... (laughs) 
<laughs> what what I'll remember most, you know, are these, you know, the four guys here and, and Greg Chemitoff. Um, you know, this is an incredible group. These flights are really, really hard to do. I mean, it's very tiring, uh, very long days, technically difficult stuff. You know, spacewalks are very hard, the robotic arm operations. I'd say our pilot, Greg Johnson, here is probably one of the most experienced robotic arm operators that the space station has now, even though he hasn't done a long-duration flight just from his two missions. Um, you know, this stuff is, 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 is really, really difficult, and to do it with a group of people that are just so accomplished and so experienced, and, you know, it makes it, you know, very easy for me. It makes my job a lot easier to have guys like this, uh, you know, on this crew. So I'll, I'll, I'll remember them more than anything. And uh, Bill Gerstemeyer as well. Mark Ratterman from Talking Space. Uh, question for Bill Gerstemeyer. I think people connect with the shuttle program, sometimes with a crew, sometimes with a mission patch, that symbol that we see so often, sometimes with a payload. Is there a particular connection that, that has stuck with you maybe through the years or a recent connection that you feel will, will always be there as, uh, as one of the top ones for you? Yeah, what's, what's unique is uh, when I think about the shuttle program, I probably think about the people that I've got the privilege of working with throughout the years. Um, you know, I was very lucky to get started in the shuttle business uh, back in the wind tunnels in Cleveland and uh, did air data probe calibration stuff and shuttle-based heating on the external tank. So I've been around the program for a while, and, uh, and throughout those uh, 34 years that I've been here with NASA, I've met some amazing folks uh, that are unbelievably dedicated. Um, I, I think there's no finer workforce in the world. Uh, they continually amaze me. We continue to ask them to do the impossible, to, to make schedules work, to do extra work, to go above and beyond, to strive for absolute perfection each and every time, and they continue to rise to the occasion and deliver. So when I think back about the shuttle program, I think of the people that I have had the privilege of working with, and they are some of the finest people that uh, I've ever ever known, and it's uh, really my privilege to, to even be considered a part of the team that they work they work in, work with. I, I mean, those are great answers, aren't they, Mark? Yeah, it was something that uh, I just had to ask because, I mean, maybe it's cheating asking a question like that where you, you to some extent, you know – a little bit about what the answer is going to be like, and you know that's going to be complementary to their teams. But you want to hear that because you know it's the team that did it, that it wasn't one person, that uh, that it was so much a group effort. And it it makes you it makes me proud to to hear these managers, to hear the crew, you know, talk about the rest of the team the way they do. Really was a great question, and. Uh interesting that the program is really just coming to an end it's hard to believe that in a month and a half we can't even talk about future shuttle flights or current shuttle flights it's all going to be past yeah i know but we still have one to talk about sawyer exactly and let's move on to the currently scheduled july 8th 2011 launch at about 2:40 p.m eastern daylight savings time which will be the final launch of the space shuttle program as well as the final launch of the Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-135, and as Mark discussed, on May 31st, rollout occurred, finishing off at Pad 39A, and we have a couple of updates regarding STS-135. 
big one being Mark, one that you pointed out about something to do with the windows and desiccant bags. Yeah, that was a surprise when I first saw mention of it. It concerned me because it's like, uh, okay, what does this mean? And it hasn't really been, uh, it hasn't gone through the full process yet to to determine if it means anything or not. But here's the deal. They have a uh, window contamination control uh, system, and I'm probably getting some of my terms mixed up. It has a desiccant material. And basically, this desiccant is, and people have probably seen it in packing material and different things, but I see it a lot in, in some of the systems that I work on. The, the object is to detect moisture. If, it, if you get any moisture in the air that is, is part of what this desiccant is, is inside, then it'll change color. It'll go from blue to pink, uh, for instance. Well, they found evidence that uh, this desiccant material had changed color slightly and they're looking into exactly what does this mean and so far they don't have the answer to that uh, one of the people that uh, that I read mention of again through nasaspaceflight.com and their level 2 forum said that uh, he had responsibility for that system when he first started out at, uh, at, at NASA and there's a number of them that are plumbed into the windows through stainless steel tubing it's to uh, keep that void between the windows dry during the flow it said they're purged with nitrogen and the cartridges are checked and then every two or three flows the cartridges are serviced with new material and they said normally the only time you see any flow through this system is during launch and landing and so they're looking into it. They're, we'll, we'll see, hopefully this week, get some indications as to what that's all about. And uh, I got a, a lot of scattered things on Atlantis, and I hate to approach it that way, but uh, shall I? Go for it, Mark, by all means. <laughs> okay. Uh, on rollout, and this is a, uh, this is a, little, a little tidbit that, that was interesting, and it's just of personal interest. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I was lucky to uh, to be able to see the rollout because I got there what I thought was going to be a, a good time, and this uh, this really kind of makes a bold bold letters and capital letters the fact that this is the last shuttle launch. But uh, I went in to uh, to see what was going on in the news center when I got there, and I met one of the people that I've known since last year, and he said uh, the list is full. I said, "What list?" He said the list for Atlantis's uh, rollout. The list is closed. It's full. I said, "Huh?" <laughs> and yeah, sure enough, it was closed. And he said, "Wait a second. There's Pat. Let's ask her." And Pat is one of the uh, one of the media staff there at the press site. And pretty quick, she had a crowd gathered around her, and she said, "Okay, everybody, settle down. I may have a couple of seats. Everybody, write your name on a piece of paper. Put it in a hat. We'll pull names out of the hat." And uh, and they did, and it it <laughs> uh, I forget who the first name was that was called. The second name was was my wife, and she said, "You go." I said, "No, you go. I'll stay here and I'll talk to some astronauts." We had astronaut interviews that we could do from the press site. So then they called the third name, and the third name was me, and I said, uh, "I'll pass." I said, "You've already got one of us from Talking Space. Go ahead and call somebody else." 
And the next person that was called, he was he was two people from me standing at the counter, and he turned and says, "Wow, thank you. I owe you big time for that." So the crowds are are going to be incredibly different for Atlantis than what we've seen before, even even with uh, Endeavor and Discovery just so close ahead of where we are now or behind us now. But uh, when I was at the VAB, uh, I managed to get positioned with the group that they took up to uh, the 16th level and they didn't give us free access uh, not totally free but they didn't allow us to bounce between levels like they did for Endeavor's rollout and so basically we were on 16 the people that were on 5 stayed on 5 and and never the twain shall meet but uh, while I was on 16 I was talking to one of the media escorts and and I, this woman said this isn't my uh, my normal job I said what do you do and she said oh I'm in the IT department and as we were chatting, she said, uh, Kennedy Space Center is going to be undergoing a complete refresh of all of their IT hardware between now and the end of the year. And then we got to talking about the magnitude of, of uh, she mentioned doing a, a survey of printers where she was the sole person responsible for surveying every printer that was uh, part of NASA's inventory on KSE. And so, you know, there's real people, there's regular folks that are that are part of each launch and landing that uh, aren't going to have that as, as part of their, uh, you know, volunteer and, and as called upon type duties. And uh, she did mention, she said, I've only been out here for one other landing and she said, probably it's just as well that I'm not covering the landing as a media escort tonight because she said the last one that I covered scrubbed and, and landed at Edwards. So, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to leave after rollout. And uh, and she said, I've been here since early this morning. So those folks put in some 12 hour, 15 hour, I think probably 18 hour days when there's a special thing going on like this. And, you know, not that not that this word goes far and wide, but uh, thank you from me, and I know thank you from many people because of what you make possible for the media to provide the coverage that they do. And aside from other trivia, Atlantis, uh, I, I found out the, uh, well, the rollout was delayed slightly. They had a leaking seal that was part of their jacking equalization and leveling on the crawler. It took a little bit of time to fix, and then uh, Atlantis rolled out and I already mentioned the window contamination system. One other neat little thing to look forward to, if it works out, is that the engineers are looking into the possibility of a modification being done on external tank 138, which Atlantis is flying, to where they will have everybody seen the camera that shows the underside of the orbiter and when the external tanks... Uh, uh, separates you see the orbiter continue to fly away from you well that camera runs for about 15 minutes the uh, video from it is downlinked to Wallops Island um, it's a low power UHF transmitter that provides that link from that camera to the ground and they're looking to do a mod to that camera to allow it to operate continuously past that normal 15 minute cutoff to where they may get a, some imagery of the tanks trip around the globe and re-entry in the South Pacific. 
that would be very interesting from both a just a you know a space nerd aspect but also probably from an engineering aspect just to see what this thing does what a large object like that because that's mark uh, forgive me if i'm wrong but isn't that like the biggest thing that we've ever sent up um in one shot is is the external tank i think it is I would think so. I, I guess you'd have to do comparisons on dimensions and and weights and such with the uh, like the first stage of the Saturn V. Um, but yeah, it's and it, it, some of the discussion that I saw on the forum is, gee, I wonder what would survive reentry. And they said, well, there's probably some of the hardware for the attachment points to the orbiter, and uh, maybe one of the main. Uh, you know, locks, feed lines, and, and a few different things. But there's some challenges because since it is a low-power UHF transmitter, um, you pretty much have to have, I'm going to say line of sight, and it's not that simple with radio uh, radio waves, but it's it's probably not something that can be picked up by satellite. So it may be that they'll get coverage, uh, normal coverage, and then if there's uh, some ground station in Europe that can pick it up as it passes over, maybe they'll get some additional video off of it, and then around the globe on the other side, Asia and Australia. So, yeah. about yeah, what don't... point do we lose it currently? I believe uh, it goes. I believe it goes into the in- Indian Ocean, Sawyer. I'm not sure. No, I mean about what point from separation do we lose video feed? I want to say it's pretty pretty close after. Um, after separation and one of the things that uh, they're looking at that may be changed is the battery is made the battery that supports the camera and the transmitter cuts off after 15 minutes the reason for that is that uh, it allows them to have as many as three launch attempts on one charge of this battery and uh, I'm, I'm kind of guessing I'm imagining during countdown that camera is activated so that it's it's running, and if they have a scrub, then the camera is one of the systems that uh, that cuts off on its own, you know, as they're doing their safing procedure for a scrub. So, you know, if they just if they set the camera to uh, and battery system to run continuously until it's depleted, then if Atlantis had a scrub, then they that would be one of the things that would have to be dealt with to to do a 24, 48 hour, whatever turnaround, they would have to get it charged back up for the next launch attempt. But uh, here's hoping that could be some really interesting video, whatever they get off of it. The other payload that Atlantis is going to be carrying is uh, the U.S. honor flag. It was begun as a tribute uh, following the September 11th attacks, and the uh, uh, flag uh, serves as a traveling memorial to uh to heroes that uh, lost their lives while serving their communities and their countries, essentially first responders, police, fire, and so on. Um, and it, it does go to uh, funerals of uh, those individuals that uh, did go ahead and give their their, uh, their lives in, in service to their communities and to their country. And um, when this flag comes back um, from Atlantis's trip and goes to the next funeral, it will have a you know a really real. I think it's going to have a, a even more special meaning than than it does now. Now going back a little bit with what we were talking about with the Soyuz and uh, not relating to the pictures though, but indeed relating to the next Soyuz launch, which is currently scheduled for June seventh, two thousand eleven, and that will be carrying a three-member crew, 
to complete the Expedition 28 crew. And uh, who do we have on board, Gene? Expedition 28. Um, they've already, first off, they've already got uh, three three crew members up there for Expedition 28. That's uh, Andrei Borisenko, um, Alexander uh uh, Semenukiev, and I know I blew that Semenukiev. one. I, thank you. I, I apologize. I think I don't. And know. <laughs> and of course, uh, our uh, flight engineer Ron Garin, who by the way did a little bit of an impromptu uh, uh, Q and A today on Twitter, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, they're going to be joined by three others: Sergey Volkov, who is uh, who is going to be also the uh, one of the flight engineers on uh, Expedition Twenty Eight. Uh, from uh, JAXA, uh, Satoshi Fuakawa, and I'm not, and forgive me if I mispronounce that, and of course NASA's own Mike Fossum. I believe um, Sawyer, they're scheduled to be launched on June 7th, and the time um, I, in uh, Baikonur would be when? Launch of Expedition 28 is scheduled for 4:12 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, good. So, be which watched. I believe would be another early morning launch in Kazakhstan. Yep. So be watching on uh, on NASA television if if you can at all. Um, and again, these they're going to be joining the uh, the rest of Expedition 28 and uh, continuing the uh, this the uh, legacy of the ISS. So we'll keep an eye on the Expedition 28 crew as they get ready to head on their way. And uh, best of luck to them. They'll be docking on June 9th. And docking is currently scheduled for 5.22 p.m. Eastern. Now, there's something else going on around June 7th, June 9th-ish. And uh, I believe that would be the launch of Aquarius, or the SAC-D Observatory, right? Right. The uh, The Aquarius mission is going to measure uh, ocean surface salinity or, or measure the, uh, the salt in the ocean to understand links between ocean circulation, the global water cycle, and climate. Um, I believe this is sort of a joint uh, project, too, between several countries, right, Sawyer? But uh, Argentina is, is one of the key, uh, key participants in this. The two key that teamed up on this were uh, the Argentinian Space Agency, which is C-O-N-A-E. And NASA. Right. And do you really want to quiz me on what SAC-D means? Sure, why not? Go ahead. In uh, Spanish, and just mind you, I've taken French, never Spanish, it's the Satellite de Aplicaciones Científicas D, or Satellite for Scientific Applications D. Yep. Which we'll continue to call Aquarius. <laughs> exactly. Um, Aquarius is, I believe, launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base and is scheduled to uh, to launch at about 10:20 um, a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard, and I believe it has a, uh, a rather short window. I believe the the window opens up at 10:20:13 and uh, and closes uh, at 10:25:13. Uh, so it's a it's a kind of a tight window there. But um, look, looking forward to uh, also getting uh, some Earth science, some more Earth science out of uh, out of NASA. And again, according to the mission clock here on the NASA website, that is launches according to this. Um, as we record this, is three days, eleven hours, and twelve minutes away. So be be on the lookout for it. So we will continue along then. By the way, just going back to the Expedition 28, I believe coming up this month we have a very exciting guest regarding the International Space Station. Yes, we do. Mark, you want to go ahead and let folks know who that is? I believe that's next week. Yes. 
Uh, a week from today, we have plans for a associate scientist from the Johnson Space Center to join us. Uh, this was a lady who gave us a few minutes of her time at the news center back in the middle of May. And uh, Tara Rutley is, is planned to be our, our guest coming up. And we're going to talk ISS science and uh, anything that uh, Dr. Rutley wants to share with us. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to have that, that insight into a little bit of the science part of the world that, that we talk about so often. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Indeed, I'm looking forward to that. Now, this next story is actually one that we discussed last week, but unfortunately, due to time, had to cut out of our previous episode. So uh, we are going to play last week's discussion about this topic, and uh, we'll be back with you after the discussion. Gina, I believe you reported this about an interesting comment from Apollo astronaut Jack Schmidt. Am I right? Yeah, Jack Schmidt, who... um, was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 17, or the 12th man to walk on the moon, being um, the last new man to set his footprints on the moon. Gene Cernan, his commander, will always claim he's the last man on the moon because he was out there longer than him. Um, did hold office in New Mexico. He is a one-term senator for the Republican Party um, back, I guess, in the mid-70s, early 80s. Uh, he did not win re-election. And he only served that one term. And he is a Republican who um, feels that the movement of global warming is nothing more than a political tool. Now, he is a trained geologist, the only scientist that ever flew Apollo until we got to Skylab. And, um, you know, he always likes to talk about how he likes to observe the Earth. And this is just sort of a cycle and a political tool and global warming isn't really real which I wholeheartedly disagree with, and I do not have a Ph.D. like him, but, um, you know, I I don't like to debate scientific fact. Fact is fact. So um, he has made uh, kind of an outrageous statement. He thinks NASA, and he just made this statement recently in the past week or two, he believes that NASA should be entirely dismantled and we should have a new space agency called NISA. He says the creation of a new space exploration administration would be charged solely with the human exploration of deep space and the reestablishment and maintenance of American dominance as a spacefaring nation. So I guess I started that introduction by explaining he doesn't like the fact that most Earth scientists are talking about global warming and this is real. And NASA spends a lot of money focused on planet Earth and focused on um, missions that, you know, fly to our polar caps and measure ice and do lots of science around planet Earth. And something tells me dear old Jack um, probably thinks that's a waste of time. Um, You know, in addition to Earth science, NASA obviously, in addition to space exploration and Earth science, you know, NASA has made huge strides in aviation, um, and a lot of people I know view NASA's uh, progress in the field of aviation as really a subsidy to uh, companies like Boeing, um, you know, but they do work hand-in-hand, scientists at NASA and, you know, Boeing engineers to, you know, make our airplanes as efficient and safe as possible that we all fly, but You know, I just think it's an absurd statement. Yes, uh, I think NASA uh, 
is quite capable of maintaining American dominance as a spacefaring nation. Um, it's called we need to um, support that with a congressional mandate for a budget, which, you know, also goes in line, I suppose, with Jack Schmidt's politics, since he's Republican and probably does not want to see too much money going to a space agency spending its time worried about global warming. So I guess I'm not surprised by the comment, but I'm a little bit stupefied because I think even from somebody that's been in the Senate for six years has to know this is kind of absurd. I can't imagine that he would be able to rally enough people to really take this kind of comment seriously. So just something to wrap up the show with. I really don't know if you guys want to debate it. I think it's absurd, but I guess it was note mentioning he is one of the only 12 men that has walked on the moon. So when they make comments like that, people tend to listen. Also, unfortunately, this week... um, I thought it was just a little ill-timed. Armstrong, Lovell, and Cernan came out with a press release kind of slamming President Obama and NASA about its uh, lack of commitment to continue exploration. And that was um, released on May 25th, of course, the 50th anniversary of JFK's speech, um, you know, promising that we would return a man to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth in a decade. But it was also the day that Charlie Bolden announced the new capsule. So I kind of felt bad for those guys. They sounded a little bit, and Jim Lovell's my hero, a little bit like they were whining, a little bit. But, um, you know, because that that announcement by Bolden, I'm sure, blindsided their, their press release. But nonetheless, it was picked up by a lot of media outlets, so worth mentioning. Yeah, Gina, to go ahead and um, to let you know, uh, the I'm looking at a uh, an article from uh, myfox9.com or uh, or should I say myfoxtwincities.com, uh, dated uh, May 29th, uh, with uh, uh, basically the announcement of uh, Harrison Schmidt basically saying that uh, uh, NASA should essentially be dismantled, and I'll 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 quote here. Um, quote, after 50 years, NASA has gotten old and it's becoming m- more bureaucratic. It's time to, uh, I think, to take a critical national sec- take the critical national security functions and geopolitical functions out of NASA and put them into a new agency. NASA does not have the focus it needs to contribute to the exceptionalism of America and the geo- geopolitical strength that we must have in this world, close quote. Um, I kind of disagree with them there. If if you're looking at geopolitical stuff, I mean, look at the International Space Station. In all honesty, uh, that was how many? That was 15 nations, I believe, collaborating together to build that build a tremendous facility. And, and NASA, whether you like it or not, led the way on that. So to go ahead and say NASA has, has, can't deal with with you know geopolitics and and has basically become old and brittle, well you know I I, I don't buy that. I think it's I mean okay fine it, it's made mistakes along the way and you know quite frankly so have we all. But to say that that the agency needs to be dismantled, um, I I can't agree with them on this one. I really can't. I honestly don't think any of us can. I mean. NASA, no matter how you look at it, has been the cornerstone of space exploration. It's been the agency that people have looked up to throughout the years. And just because they want to change objectives doesn't mean that we completely disintegrate them and reinvigorate them as something else. It's almost like with what we were talking about with Orion. It's the same concept. doesn't mean you have to rename it. 
Same thing with NASA. If it's the same basic concept. You don't have to rename it. You just reinvigorate what you had. And I think we're slowly doing that. I mean, we may not be moving as fast as we'd all like to see it, but uh, the announcement this week of the multi-purpose crew vehicle, um, again, basically being the replacement for the shuttle, uh, at least we know now that there is something coming. It will be online, we hope, in 2016, and uh, we've got at least, at least something to look forward to. And that is just going to be one piece of, a, of an exploration puzzle that is still being worked out. Um, so again, we'll just have to have to see what the future holds. But at least I think we're finally moving in the right direction with this particular vehicle. So we'll see what ends up happening with that story. But we're going to finish off here on a sadder note. Yes, indeed. Um, unfortunately, there's a report out of Florida today, uh, uh, dated June 3rd. Um, Lee Shearer, who uh, led the uh, Kennedy Space Center through a, its last major transition, which was from Apollo to shuttle, um, uh, passed away. Uh, he was he uh, passed away um, on May 7th at the age of 91. Um, he was uh, the Kennedy Space Center's second center director between 1975 and 1979. Uh, and he was the center director during the Apollo-Soyuz test flight, and um, when Columbia first arrived, the first, the very first flight, uh, flight-ready orbiter. Um, according to uh, the current uh, KSC uh, director, uh, Bob Cabana, quote, and I'm quoting directly from the Florida Today article here, he was a lifelong uh, KSC advocate and joined us frequently on launch days. We have lost one of our biggest boosters, and he will he will be missed. Um, he took uh, charge of KSC um, on uh, January nineteenth, nineteen seventy-five, uh, while the you know uh, the Apollo program was slowly winding down, and uh, saw the uh, center through uh, the the transition to the shuttle era. And uh, we we, lot, we lose that gentleman around the same time of uh, of another transition that's coming. So, again, uh, our our thoughts to the family. Yep, and with that, I believe we are just about ready to bring this episode to a close. But before we do, we just want to put a little note in here that recently there was an update to the Talking Space website, which if you listen to this through iTunes, you may not have noticed. So be sure to check out TalkingSpaceOnline.com and... Check out the new look and feel of the site and uh, send us any comments, questions, concerns about it on the little contact us link on the right is every way to contact us. And uh, we want to hear positive or negative. And, and be on the lookout. There's more changes coming. So, uh, again, we, we, do, we would appreciate some feedback. Thanks. So now with that, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Fun night here, Sawyer. Always, always great to talk with you guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Gina, for that word, elegant. I, I love that word, and it seems to say so much about everything we talk about so often with a shuttle. Well, thanks, Mark. Actually, I was just going to make a comment that um, your contribution tonight was just phenomenal, and uh, it, was, it, it was really a, a, just a great story to listen to. And on that same vein, Mark, you you put in yeoman service down there. Uh, that was that was a 
that was a sprint down there. It really was, and and you were there for for all of it, uh, pretty much. I mean, uh, we were. I made a comment that I think you at one point you were running on pure adrenaline. I mean, but again, I have to thank you so much for uh, for covering the uh, the rollout of Atlantis and the return of of Endeavor. You did a m- remarkable job for us. So thanks a lot. You're welcome. It was a th- it was a thrilling uh, a thrilling time. I wish I could uh, describe it even better. Words don't do justice. It's a shame. It's it's something really special. And uh, thanks for allowing me to to be a part of this. And thank you to our listeners for entertaining me. And uh, we got more to come. And uh, I guess we're just gonna have to twist your arm again to keep going down reporting for us at the Kennedy Space Center. Should I throw in a teaser real quick? Do we it. always like teasers. Okay, listen, everybody cross your fingers or whatever you think is uh, is good for making stuff happen. But uh, I've put in a request to be included on what is probably going to be a pretty short list of interview opportunities to interview some of the shuttle experts in the crew cabin of Discovery. I am looking so looking forward to hearing everything about that one, Mark. That's oh, going to be an I, awesome show. That is going to be amazing. It's uh, it's on a it's on part of the uh, the activities during TCDT for Atlantis, and uh, apparently they're going to have the press have some really unprecedented access to Discovery, but uh, I don't believe much of it includes inside, and uh, I'm hoping for for that special time. We'll see. I'll let you know. When I saw that update, I was hoping so much that you would get into that. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, Mark. I'm really hoping hoping we we were able to you're able to get a foothold in there. That it's going to be amazing. I'm telling you, these media credential things don't stink. <laughs> and thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. Oh, you're very welcome. We couldn't forget about you there. So again, we'd like to thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.